Chapter Two, Part Three of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter Two, The Lamp of Truth, Part Three. Nineteen. The last form of fallacy which it will be remembered we had to deprecate was the substitution of cast or machine work for that of the hand, generally expressible as operative deceit. There are two reasons, both weighty, against this practice. One, that all cast and machine work is bad, as work. The other, that it is dishonest. Of its badness I shall speak in another place, that being evidently no efficient reason against its use when other cannot be had its dishonesty however which to my mind is of the grossest kind is i think a sufficient reason to determine absolute and unconditional rejection of it ornament as i have often before observed has two entirely distinct sources of agreeableness one that of the abstract beauty of its forms which for the present we will suppose to be the same whether they come from the hand or the machine the other the sense of human labour and care spent upon it how great this later influence we may perhaps judge by considering that there is not a cluster of weeds growing in any cranny of ruin which has not a beauty in all respects nearly equal and in some immeasurably superior to that of the most elaborate sculpture of its stones and that all our interest in the carved work our sense of its richness though it is tenfold less rich than the knots of grass beside it of its delicacy though it is a thousandfold less delicate of its admirableness though a millionfold less admirable results from our consciousness of its being the work of poor clumsy toilsome man its true delightfulness depends on our discovering in it the record of thoughts of intents and trials and heartbreakings of recoveries and joyfulnesses of success all this can be traced by a practised eye but granting it even obscure it is presumed or understood and in that is the worth of the thing just as much as the worth of anything else we call precious the worth of a diamond is simply the understanding of the time it must take to look for it before it can be cut it has an intrinsic value besides which the diamond has not for a diamond has no more real beauty than a piece of glass but i do not speak of that at present i place the two on the same ground and i suppose that hand-wrought ornament can no more be generally known from machine-work than a diamond can be known from paste nay that the latter may deceive for a moment the masons as the other the jeweller's eye and that it can be detected only by the closest examination yet exactly as a woman of feeling would not wear false jewels so would a builder of honour disdain false ornaments the using of them is just as downright and inexcusable a lie you use that which pretends to a worth which it has not which pretends to have cost and to be what it did not and is not 
it is an imposition, a vulgarity, an impertinence, and a sin. Down with it to the ground, grind it to powder, leave its ragged place upon the wall, rather. You have not paid for it, you have no business with it, you do not want it. Nobody wants ornaments in this world, but everybody wants integrity. All the fair devices that ever were fancied are not worth a lie. Leave your walls as bare as a planed board, or build them of baked mud and chopped straw, if need be, but do not rough-cast them with falsehood. This, then, being our general law, and I hold it for a more imperative one than any other I have asserted, and this kind of dishonesty the meanest, as the least necessary, for ornament is an extravagant and inessential thing, and therefore, if fallacious, utterly base. This, I say, being our general law, there are nevertheless certain exceptions respecting particular substances and their uses. 20. Thus, in the use of brick, since that is known to be originally moulded, there is no reason why it should not be moulded into diverse forms. It will never be supposed to have been cut, and therefore will cause no deception. It will have only the credit it deserves. In flat countries, far from any quarry of stone, cast brick may be legitimately and most successfully used in decoration, and that elaborate and even refined. The brick mouldings of the Palazzo Popoli at Bologna and those which run round the market-place of Vercelli are among the richest in Italy. So also tile and porcelain work, of which the former is grotesquely but successfully employed in the domestic architecture of France, coloured tiles being inserted in the diamond spaces between the crossing timbers, and the latter admirably in Tuscany in external bas-reliefs by the Robia family, in which works, while we cannot but sometimes regret the useless and ill-arranged colours, we would by no means blame the employment of a material which, whatever it defects, excels every other in permanence, and, perhaps, requires even greater skill in its management than marble. For it is not the material, but the absence of the human labour, which makes the thing worthless. And a piece of terracotta, or of plaster of Paris, which has been wrought by human hand, is worth all the stone in Carrara cut by machinery. It is indeed possible, and even usual, for men to sink into machines themselves, so that even handwork has all the characters of mechanism. Of the difference between living and dead handwork I shall speak presently. All that I ask at present is, what it is always in our power to secure, the confession of what we have done and what we have given, so that when we use stone at all, since all stone is naturally supposed to be carved by hand, we must not carve it by machinery, neither must we use any artificial stone cast into shape, nor any stucco ornaments of the colour of stone, or which might in any wise be mistaken for it, as the stucco mouldings in the cortile of the Palazzo Vecchio at Florence, which cast a shame and suspicion over every part of the building. But for ductile and fusible materials, as clay, iron, and bronze, since these will usually be supposed to have been cast or stamped, 
it is at our pleasure to employ them as we will, remembering that they become precious or otherwise just in proportion to the handwork upon them, or to the clearness of their reception of the handwork of their mould. But I believe no cause to have been more active in the degradation of our natural feeling for beauty than the constant use of cast-iron ornaments. The common ironwork of the Middle Ages was as simple as it was effective, composed of leafage cut flat out of sheet-iron and twisted at the workman's will. No ornaments, on the contrary, are so cold, clumsy, and vulgar, so essentially incapable of a fine line or shadow, as those of cast iron and while on the score of truth we can hardly allege anything against them since they are always distinguishable at a glance from wrought and hammered work and stand only for what they are yet i feel very strongly that there is no hope of the progress of the arts of any nation which indulges in these vulgar and cheap substitutes for real decoration their inefficiency and paltriness I shall endeavour to show more conclusively in another place, enforcing only at present the general conclusion that, if even honest or allowable, they are things in which we can never take just pride or pleasure, and must never be employed in any place wherein they might either themselves obtain the credit of being other and better than they are, or be associated with the downright work to which it would be a disgrace to be found in their company." such are i believe the three principal kinds of fallacy by which architecture is liable to be corrupted there are however other and more subtle forms of it against which it is less easy to guard by definite law than by the watchfulness of a manly and unaffected spirit for as it has been above noticed there are certain kinds of deception which extend to impressions and ideas only of which some are indeed of a noble use as that above referred to the aborescent look of lofty gothic isles but of which the most part have so much of legerdemain and trickery about them that they will lower any style in which they considerably prevail and they are likely to prevail when once they are admitted being apt to catch the fancy alike of uninventive architects and feelingless spectators just as mean and shallow minds are in other matters delighted with the sense of overreaching or tickled with the conceit of detecting the intention to overreach and when subtleties of this kind are accompanied by the display of such dexterous stone-cutting or architectural sleight of hand as may become even by itself a subject of admiration it is a great chance if the pursuit of them do not gradually draw us away from all regard and care for the nobler character of the art, and end in its total paralysis or extinction. And against this there is no guarding, but by stern disdain of all display of dexterity and ingenious device, and by putting the whole force of our fancy into the arrangement of masses and forms, caring no more how these masses and forms are wrought out than a great painter cares which way his pencil strikes it would be easy to give many instances of the danger of these tricks and vanities but i shall confine myself to the examination of one which has as i think been the cause of the fall of gothic architecture throughout europe i mean the system of intersectional mouldings which on account of its great importance and for the sake of the general reader 
I may, perhaps, be pardoned for explaining elementarily. 21. I must, in the first place, however, refer to Professor Willis's account of the origin of tracery, given in the sixth chapter of his Architecture of the Middle Ages, since the publication of which I have been not a little amazed to hear of any attempts made to resuscitate the inexcusably absurd theory of its derivation from imitated vegetable form. Inexcusably, I say, because the smallest acquaintance with early Gothic architecture would have informed the supporters of that theory of the simple fact that, exactly in proportion to the antiquity of the work, the imitation of such organic forms is less, and in the earliest examples does not exist at all. There cannot be the shadow of a question in the mind of a person familiarized with any single series of consecutive examples that tracery arose from the gradual enlargement of the penetrations of the shield of stone, which, usually supported by a central pillar, occupied the head of early windows. Professor Willis, perhaps, confines his observations somewhat too absolutely to the double sub-arch. I have given in plate 7, figure 2, an interesting case of rude penetration of a high and simply trefoiled shield from the church of the Ermitani at Padua. But the more frequent and typical form is that of the double sub-arch decorated with various piercings of the space between it and the superior arch, with a simple trefoil under a round arch in the Abeozom Kayan, plate 3, figure 1. Footnote, plate 3. In this plate, figures 4, 5, and 6 are glazed windows, but figure 2 is the open light of a belfry tower, and figures 1 and 3 are in triforia, the latter also occurring filled on the central tower of Coutances. End footnote. With a very beautifully proportioned quatrefoil in the triforium of Ou, and that of the choir of Lisieux, with quatrefoils, sixfoils, and septfoils, in the transept towers of Rouen, plate 3, figure 2, with a trefoil awkwardly and very small quatrefoil above, at Coutances, plate 3, figure 3. Then, with multiplications of the same figures, pointed or round, giving very clumsy shapes of the intermediate stone, figure 4, from one of the nave chapels of Rouen, figure 5, from one of the nave chapels of Bayeux and finally by thinning out the stony ribs, reaching conditions like that of the glorious typical form of the clear story of the apse of Bouvet. Figure 6. 22. Now it will be noticed that, during the whole of this process, the attention is kept fixed on the forms of the penetrations, that is to say, of the lights as seen from the interior, not of the intermediate stone. All the grace of the window is in the outline of its light, and I have drawn all these traceries as seen from within, in order to show the effect of the light thus treated, at first in far-off and separate stars, and then gradually enlarging, approaching, until they come and stand over us, as it were, filling the whole space with their effulgence. And it is in this pause of the star that we have the great, pure, and perfect form of French Gothic, it was at the instant when the rudeness of the intermediate space had been finally conquered, when the light had expanded to its fullest, and yet had not lost its radiant unity, principality, and visible first causing of the whole, 
that we have the most exquisite feeling and most faultless judgments in the management alike of the tracery and decorations. I have given in plate 10 an exquisite example of it from a panel decoration of the buttresses of the north door of Rouen, and in order that the reader may understand what truly fine Gothic work is, and how nobly it unites fantasy and law, as well as for our immediate purpose, it will be well that he should examine its sections and mouldings in detail. They are described in the fourth chapter, paragraph 27, and that the more carefully, because this design belongs to a period in which the most important change took place in the spirit of Gothic architecture, which perhaps ever resulted from the natural progress of any art. That tracery marks a pause between the laying aside of one great ruling principle and the taking up of another, a pause as marked, as clear, as conspicuous to the distant view of after-times as to the distant glance of the traveller is the culminating ridge of the mountain chain over which he has passed. It was the great watershed of Gothic art. Before it, all had been ascent. After it, all was decline, both indeed by winding paths of varied slopes, both interrupted like the gradual rise and fall of the passes of the Alps, by great mountain outliers, isolated or branching from the central chain, and by retrograde or parallel directions of the valleys of access. But the track of the human mind is traceable up to that glorious ridge in a continuous line and thence downwards, like a silver zone. Flung about carelessly it shines afar, catching the eye in many a broken link, in many a turn and traverse as it glides, and oft above and oft below appears, to him who journeys up as though it were another. And at that point, at that instant, reaching the place that was nearest heaven, the builders looked back, for the last time, to the way by which they had come, and the scenes through which their early course had passed. They turned away from them and their morning light, and descended towards a new horizon, for a time in the warmth of western sun, but plunging with every forward step into more cold and melancholy shade. 23. The change of which I speak is inexpressible in few words, but one more important, more radically influential, could not be. It was the substitution of the line for the mass, as the element of decoration. We have seen the mode in which the openings or penetration of the window expanded until what were, at first, awkward forms of intermediate stone, became delicate lines of tracery and I have been careful in pointing out the peculiar attention bestowed on the proportion and decoration of the mouldings of the window at Rouen, in plate 10, as compared with earlier mouldings, because that beauty and care are singularly significant. They mark that the traceries had caught the eye of the architect. Up to that time, up to the very last instant, in which the reduction and thinning of the intervening stone was consummated, his eye had been on the openings only, on the stars of light. He did not care about the stone, a rude border of moulding was all he needed. 
it was the penetrating shape which he was watching but when that shape had received its last possible expansion and when the stonework became an arrangement of graceful and parallel lines that arrangement like some form in a picture unseen and accidentally developed struck suddenly inevitably on the sight it had literally not been seen before it flashed out in an instant as an independent form it became a feature of the work the architect took it under his care thought over it and distributed its members as we see now the great pause was at the moment when the space and the dividing stonework were both equally considered it did not last fifty years the forms of the tracery were seized with a childish delight in the novel source of beauty and the intervening space was cast aside as an element of decoration forever i have confined myself in following this change to the window as the feature in which it is clearest but the transition is the same in every member of architecture and its importance can hardly be understood unless we take the pains to trace it in the universality of which illustrations irrelevant to our present purpose will be found in the third chapter i pursue here the question of truth relating to the treatment of the mouldings twenty four the reader will observe that up to the last expansion of the penetrations the stonework was necessarily considered as it actually is stiff and unyielding it was so also during the pause of which i have spoken when the forms of the tracery were still severe and pure delicate indeed but perfectly firm at the close of the period of pause the first sign of serious change was like a low breeze passing through the emaciated tracery and making it tremble it began to undulate like the threads of a cobweb lifted by the wind it lost its essence as a structure of stone reduced to the slenderness of threads it began to be considered as possessing also their flexibility the architect was pleased with this his new fancy and set himself to carry it out and in a little time the bars of tracery were caused to appear to the eye as if they had been woven together like a net this was a change which sacrificed a great principle of truth it sacrificed the expression of the qualities of the material and however delightful its results in their first developments it was ultimately ruinous for observe the difference between the supposition of ductility and that of elastic structure noticed above in the resemblance to tree form that resemblance was not sought but necessary it resulted from the natural conditions of strength in the pier or trunk and slenderness in the ribs or branches while many of the other suggested conditions of resemblance were perfectly true a tree branch though in a certain sense flexible is not ductile it is as firm in its own form as the rib of stone both of them will yield up to certain limits both of them breaking when those limits are exceeded while the tree trunk will bend no more than the stone pillar but when the tracery is assumed to be as yielding as a silken cord when the whole fragility elasticity and weight of the material are to the eye if not in terms denied when all the art of the architect is applied to disprove the first conditions of his working and the first attributes of his materials this 
is a deliberate treachery, only redeemed from the charge of direct falsehood by the visibility of the stone surface, and degrading all the traceries it affects, exactly in the degree of its presence. 25. But the declining and morbid taste of the later architects was not satisfied with thus much deception. They were delighted with the subtle charm they had created, and thought only of increasing its power. The next step was to consider and represent the tracery as not only ductile, but penetrable, and when two mouldings met each other to manage their intersection so that one should appear to pass through the other, retaining its independence, or when two ran parallel to each other to represent the one as partly contained within the other and partly apparent above it. Now this form of falsity was that which crushed the art. The flexible traceries were often beautiful, though they were ignoble, but the penetrated traceries rendered as they finally were merely the means of exhibiting the dexterity of the stone-cutter annihilated both the beauty and dignity of the gothic types a system so momentous in its consequences deserves some detailed examination twenty six in the drawing of the shafts of the door at lisieux under the spandrel in plate seven the reader will see the mode of managing the intersection of similar mouldings which was universal in the great periods. They melted into each other, and became one at the point of crossing, or of contact. And even the suggestion of so sharp intersection as this of Lisieux is actually avoided, this design being, of course, only a pointed form of the earlier Norman arcade, in which the arches are interlaced, and lie each over the preceding and under the following, one as in Anselm's Tower at Canterbury since in the plurality of designs when mouldings meet each other they coincide through some considerable portion of their curves meeting by contact rather than by intersection and at the point of coincidence the section of each separate moulding becomes common to the two thus melted into each other thus in the junction of the circles of the window of the palazzo foscari plate eight given accurately in figure eight plate four the section above the line s is exactly the same as that across any break of the separated moulding above as s proper it sometimes however happens that two different mouldings meet each other this was seldom permitted in the great periods and when it took place was most awkwardly managed figure one plate four gives the junction of the mouldings of the gable and vertical in the window of the spire of salisbury that of the gable is composed of a single and that of the vertical of a double cavetto decorated with ball flowers and the larger single moulding swallows up one of the double ones and pushes forward among the smaller balls with the most blundering and clumsy simplicity in comparing the sections it is to be observed that in the upper one the line a b represents an actual vertical in the plane of the window while in the lower one the line CD represents the horizontal in the plane of the window indicated by the perspective line DE. The very awkwardness with which such occurrences of difficulty are met by the earlier builder marks his dislike of the system and unwillingness to attract the eye to such arrangements. There is another very clumsy one in the junction of the upper and sub-arches of the Triforium of Salisbury, but it is kept in the shade, 
and all the prominent junctions are of mouldings like each other, and managed with perfect simplicity. But so soon as the attention of the builders became, as we have just seen, fixed upon the lines of mouldings, instead of the enclosed spaces, those lines began to preserve an independent existence wherever they met, and different mouldings were studiously associated in order to obtain variety of intersectional line. We must, however, do the late builders the justice to note that in one case the habit grew out of a feeling of proportion, more refined than that of earlier workmen. It shows itself first in the bases of divided pillars or arch mouldings, whose smaller shafts had originally bases formed by the continued base of the central or other larger columns with which they were grouped. But it being felt when the eye of the architect became fastidious, that the dimension of moulding which was right for the base of a large shaft was wrong for that of a small one, each shaft had an independent base. At first, those of the smaller died simply down on that of the larger. But when the vertical sections of both became complicated, the bases of the similar shafts were considered to exist within those of the larger, and the places of their emergence on this supposition were calculated with the utmost nicety and cut with singular precision, so that an elaborate late base of a divided column, as for instance of those in the nave of Abbeville, looks exactly as if its smaller shafts had all been finished to the ground first, each with its complete and intricate base, and then the comprehending base of the central pier had been moulded over them in clay, leaving their points and angles sticking out here and there, like the edges of sharp crystals out of a nodule of earth. The exhibition of technical dexterity in work of this kind is often marvellous, the strangest possible shapes of sections being calculated to a hair's breadth, and the occurrence of the under and emergent forms being rendered even in places where they are so slight that they can hardly be detected but by the touch. It is impossible to render a very elaborate example of this kind intelligible without some fifty measured sections, but figure six, plate four, is a very interesting and simple one from the west gate of Rouen. It is part of the base of one of the narrow piers between its principal niches. The square column K, having a base with the profile PR, is supposed to contain within itself another similar one, set diagonally, and lifted so far above the enclosing one, as that the recessed part of its profile, P proper, R, shall fall behind the projecting part of the outer one. The angle of its upper portion exactly meets the plane of the side of the upper enclosing shaft 4, and would therefore not be seen, unless two vertical cuts were made to exhibit it, which form two dark lines the whole way up the shaft. Two small pilasters are run like fastening stitches through the junction on the front of the shafts. The sections K proper, N proper, taken respectively at the levels K, N, will explain the hypothetical construction of the whole. Figure 7 is a base, or joint rather, for the passages of this form occur again and again on the shafts of the flamboyant work, of one of the smallest piers of the pedestals which support the lost statues of the porch. Its section below would be the same as N proper, and its construction, after what has been said of the other base, will be at once perceived. 28. There was, however, 
in this kind of involution much to be admired as well as reprehended the proportions of quantities were always as beautiful as they were intricate and though the lines of intersection were harsh they were exquisitely opposed to the flower-work of the interposing mouldings but the fancy did not stop here it rose from the base into the arches and there not finding room enough for its exhibition it withdrew the capitals from the heads even of cylindrical shafts we cannot but admire while we regret the boldness of the men who could defy the authority and custom of all the nations of the earth for a space of some three thousand years in order that the arch mouldings might appear to emerge from the pillar as at its base they had been lost in it and not to terminate on the abacus of the capital then they ran the mouldings across and through each other at the point of the arch and finally not finding their natural directions enough to furnish as many occasions of intersection as they wished bent them hither and thither and cut off their ends short when they had passed the point of intersection figure two plate four is part of a flying buttress from the apse of saint gervais at falaise in which the moulding whose section is rudely given above at f proper taken vertically through the point f is carried thrice through itself in the crossbar and two arches and the flat fillet is cut off sharp at the end of the crossbar for the mere pleasure of the truncation figure three is half of the head of a door in the stadthouse of Sursee, in which the shaded part of the section of the joint g g is that of the arch moulding which is three times reduplicated and six times intersected by itself the ends being cut off when they became unmanageable this style is indeed earlier exaggerated in switzerland and germany owing to the imitation in stone of the dovetailing of wood particularly of the intersecting of beams at the angles of chalets but it only furnishes the more plain insistence of the danger of the fallacious system which from the beginning repressed the german and in the end ruined the french gothic it would be too painful a task to follow further the caricatures of form and eccentricities of treatment which grow out of this singular abuse the flattened arch the shrunken pillar the lifeless ornament the linny moulding the distorted and extravagant foliation until the time came when over these wrecks and remnants deprived of all unity in principle rose the foul torrent of the renaissance and swept them all away so fell the great dynasty of medieval architecture it was because it had lost its own strength and disobeyed its own laws because its order and consistency and organization had been broken through that it could oppose no resistance to the rush of overwhelming innovation and this observe all because it had sacrificed a single truth from that one surrender of its integrity from that one endeavour to assume the semblance of what it was not arose the multitudinous forms of disease and decrepitude which rotted away the pillars of its supremacy it was not because its time was come it was not because it was scorned by the classical romanist or dreaded by the faithful protestant 
that scorn and that fear it might have survived and lived it would have stood forth in stern comparison with the enervated sensuality of the renaissance it would have risen in renewed and purified honour and with a new soul from the ashes into which it sank giving up its glory as it had received it for the honour of god but its own truth was gone and it sank for ever there was no wisdom nor strength left in it to raise it from the dust and the error of zeal and the softness of luxury smote it down and dissolved it away it is good for us to remember this as we tread upon the bare ground of its foundations and stumble over its scattered stones those rent skeletons of pierced wall through which our sea winds moan and murmur strewing them joint by joint and bone by bone along the bleak promontories on which the pharaoh's lights came once from houses of prayer those grey arches and quiet aisles under which the sheep of our valleys feed and rest on the turf that has buried their altars those shapeless heaps that are not of the earth which lift our fields into strange and sudden banks of flowers and stay our mountain streams with stones that are not their own have other thoughts to ask from us than those of mourning for the rage that despoiled or the fear that forsook them it was not the robber not the fanatic not the blasphemer who sealed the destruction that they had wrought the war the wrath the terror might have worked their worst and the strong walls would have risen and the slight pillars would have started again from under the hand of the destroyer but they could not rise out of the ruins of their own violated truth end of chapter two section three recording by todd ulrich